Well, hello and welcome back. This episode has been sponsored by C90 Ocean Minerals, nature's most complete trace mineral salt and the one I feed to my herd. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another week of Ranching Reboot. This episode is made possible by our generous patrons over on patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. Check the show notes for a link. This week, show is also sponsored by Legends Pub and Grill in Pratt. If you're ever passing through Pratt on Highway 54 or coming down 61, make sure you stop by Legends for a tasty burger. I just had a bourbon burger and rattlesnake eggs. Kind of my favorite thing to eat there, and uh, I've got no complaints. So if you're ever passing through Pratt and you're hungry, stop by Legends. So today we're here at the Eastus Media Studio in downtown Pratt with my friend August Horseman, who just happened to be in the neighborhood for a little bit. So August, we've been hanging out all day, um, came up, had a little breakfast, big ranch tour, you got to see some of Southern Pratt County and some of Barber County. So how are you feeling about it? Pretty good. This is neat country like I've never seen. It's uh, cow country and rough. It definitely has its own challenges. So uh, tell our listeners where you're from. I'm from Owensville, Missouri, uh, about 60 miles east of St. Louis, right in the center part of the state. We're off of uh, Highway 50. Um, we're a cow-calf backgrounder, finisher operation. Okay. So are you from there in Missouri? I am from St. Louis County, yes. And uh we currently, my wife and I live on uh, my parents' farm, which was uh, started by my grandparents in the 70s. Okay. So what, what, I guess, kind of walk me through your background since the farm's been a family for a little bit. Um, you went off to college, got an education, worked in the world. How did you decide you wanted to be a rancher? I always knew I wanted to raise cattle. Um I thought back when I was a kid, I thought it took 200 acres and 30 beefalo cows. Um, when I was in high school, my parents moved to Wyoming for, um, I guess, for fun. Um, while I was out in Wyoming, I learned about uh, big cow-calf operations and realized that I loved that and what part of Wyoming were you in? We were in the northwest part. So we lived in a little town called Wilson, which was uh, on the outskirts of Jackson. I went to Jackson Hole High School. I was trying to think if I've interviewed anybody from there, but it's like I've covered every other part of Wyoming but that one. Yeah, uh, I was with Dallas Mount. And he said, not really Wyoming, and I had to chuckle. Fair enough. <laughs> it's a big tourist spot. Fair enough. I, th- I was just reading a reading an article about Jackson Hole the other day about how it kind of blew up into a tourist area in the seventies and eighties, and they were marketing it as like the last of the cowboy culture, <laughs> and it was just just kind of turned out to be over commercialized, like everything else. Is that that kind of track? Yeah, it's grown up quite a bit since I've been gone. I was I left to go to Mizzou in twenty twelve, and. Um, visited probably yearly, then by bi- yearly. Um, and every time I'm out there, you know, it seems like there's more and more people and way more traffic and, um, things have definitely changed from when I was there. 
I guess, living there. I guess that's the thing about, you know, some of those Western landscapes and, you know, and <clears throat> excuse me, some of the areas that we've kind of discussed lately, like uh, on the podcast, like Riverton and, you know, uh, Wind River Mountains where, where Katie's at up there, Cora, how recently that was actually settled. And I think I'm lucky. I think we're lucky here in the Red Hills that nobody knows about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's uh, yeah, that's something that is that's neat. But at the same time, with growing a farm market or a farm sales or direct marketing business, that could also lead to challenges because of the population or you know, trying to sell a value-added product. Yeah, I mean, population density is definitely, you know, population density equals access to market. But the greater population density gets in the area, the more competition there is for things like land resources, which drives the price up. You know, maybe there's a little more competition in the labor market. Maybe that's actually driving your day help price down, which could be, you know, helpful. I don't know what Day help gotten really expensive in the last 12 months, I can tell you that, especially around here. Um, yeah, every place is going to have its own little advantages and disadvantages, and you, every place can probably have an unfair advantage if you know what you're looking for. Yeah, 100%. And it's just trying to figure out what those unfair advantages are, which will give you a leg up. Okay, so growing up in Jackson Hole, you went to Mizzou in 2012. Then, uh, let's see, I graduated a semester early, uh, December 2015. Um, we had uh, had a bunch of heifers that we were going to calve, so about 75 heifers that we were uh, supposed to calve that spring, did calve that spring, and so I had to graduate early so I could do that. Um, spent, you know late nights, early mornings, and multiple times throughout the day, checking on them, you know, way different than what I do now with, as far as calving heifers. I couldn't even tell you how many heifers are going to calve this fall. Oh, we'll get to that later. <laughs> we'll, we could talk about some of those differences later. But, yeah. What, what's your degree in? Animal science with a minor in ag economics. Okay. I really want to ask you what that taught you about how to manage forage at high stock densities or even how to properly graze a pasture. It taught me a lot of things. Um, basically, it was what I learned in school I don't on a day-to-day -day basis implement, if that makes sense. I mean, we aren't. Uh, shooting for heavy weaning weights. We aren't um, building rations. We aren't, to, well, I don't, there's a lot of things that we're taught that we aren't, to, aren't doing anymore. Okay. I don't, that we probably want to cut that out. Oh, we could, we could cut that out. <laughs> Maybe we'll leave it in. So, I guess a missing link for me right now is your folks went up to up to Northwest Wyoming. Mm -hmm. How did you get the place back in Missouri, or did they never sell it? Um, they never sell it. So it was my grandparents' place. Okay. So my grandparents were 
both living while I was going through high, uh, going through college and living on the farm. Um, as a couple neighboring places came over open, my dad had the opportunity to purchase those places. So one one was in 2012, and then the next chunk was in 2014. That is kind of the that's the total of our land base we run on now. It's all touching, um, and so I guess back to my grandparents. They were. And let's see, I got married in 2016, and they were both there. So a, f- uh, a couple of years ago is when my grandma and grandpa both passed away, and so that's when the farm went, and my dad bought his brother and sister out. Okay. And uh, I think he bought it for... Um, Maybe the investment, you know, we were trying to run a farm. Um, sentimental value had a lot to do with it, too. And uh, so we, I think he wanted it to keep keep it in the family. I'm one of six boys, and we all love the farm, so. Okay. So I am don't know how to ask it, but I kind of want to know, like, what succession planning lessons you may have learned through that experience um i think it's definitely we haven't talked a whole lot about it i'm the oldest so my youngest brother is in uh i think he's going to be in eighth grade this year so um we haven't talked about just a little bit of a split there yeah (laughs) just a small bit uh so we haven't really talked from like what's going to happen next but i think after this last go around knowing what page everybody the other family members are on would be very beneficial i think making sure everybody's on the same page as far as what they want to see in the future for Mm -hmm. the land is extremely important and that's you know that leads to who's actually going to be doing the work and caring for it yeah and how it's going to be laid out you know is, is it going to be a split three ways a third 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 or you know if making sure that it's just laid out so everybody knows or has an idea of what's to happen i think one of the biggest wrecks i've seen is is undivided interest is is a property being left to a a number of heirs more than two in an undivided interest type situation mm-hmm. and then you know you know, those heirs may be up in their 50s or 60s by the time they get that, quote, undivided interest. And how do you sell 26% of a ranch, 26% of an undivided interest in something? Yeah, I don't. I mean, it, it can be really difficult. You know, and don't need to solve the world's succession planning problems right here. I mean, God, we're only 12 minutes in. There's no way we're going to solve that problem right now. Um but having the conversation, understanding that that's what's kind of helping your family through, right? Yeah, I think just knowing where everybody's at, talking about it way ahead of time before it really needs to be talked about or dealt with. Yeah. Because some of it, you know, has to deal with succession. Well, somebody, something has to happen for the succession to take place, and that's typically 
somebody has to die. Yeah, so that's typically death, which that's not a... Nobody likes talking about yeah, it. Yeah, not going to be an easy topic of... It, nobody gets out of life alive. We're all going to die. I've never seen a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. They only dig the hole big enough for the box. Yep. You know, have the conversation. It's not going to hurt anybody. It's not going to take anything away from you. It's not going to take anything off your plate. If anything, it's going to make your life easier knowing that the people aren't going to be fighting about your crap when you're not here anymore. Yep. 100%. And that's, I think that's the most important thing that somebody could leave behind is leave behind their heirs not fighting about their crap. Yeah. I'd say, and I'd say a lot more families would stick together and talk, but I mean, I don't know. If wishes were horses, I wouldn't have to buy hay. I'm not sure what that means. So tell me about your cows. Tell me about your operation. Okay. So when I graduated, our cow herd is completely changed. We started with black cows, registered bulls, and, uh, a more input-based system. Currently, we are buying cheap cows, running what we think are value-added bulls, and uh, have decreased our inputs to basically one bale of hay in the winter and two bags of mineral, two bags of rock salt, I guess I should say. And then grass, water, sunlight. Kind of sounds like my salt and scenery program. Yeah. Yep. So what's your idea of a cheap cow? Oh, I mean, I've bought them as cheap as a hundred bucks and they'll calve 60 days, hundred days later. Um, we try to buy cattle that it really depends. It depends a lot on, on the cow itself and what her, what she's carrying. If she's carrying a calf that we, out of a bull that, we think it provides value to our operation. We give a little more for, um, but we try to stick in the four to seven hundred dollar range on a on a younger running age cow. But we also buy horns. We buy color. I mean, that's two then things that the horn color ones can be pretty cheap. Yeah, that's two things that sale barns don't like, or m- most people, and that's be- because of their market. Right. You know, with selling those calves. And um, we're kind of working on building a market, uh, uh, direct to consumer business, as well as a, a beef business to service other, other people's farms and, and meat programs. So um, it's, we can, anything that comes out really colorful or with horns, you know, it can, it can roll into our meat business, and you know the ground beef is really good off of something with color. Yeah, yeah, and without without like opening up a whole can of worms about certified Angus beef and branding programs, I think there's. Do you feel like we're working against consumer misinformation? Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's. I think some would be misinformation. I would say a lot of it is uh, disconnection. And maybe, maybe miss. Maybe that's not the right word. Maybe it's just they don't know the whole story, or they're not being told the whole story. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, and that would go in with, you know, just kind of maybe holes in the information that they are, are getting or, um, definitely consumer education is one of our weak, I guess it's a necessary point, something we do on both ends, whether we're selling a live calf to somebody's meat business or we're going to sell a whole half quarter or a steak to somebody. I mean, education, 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 and why we're doing what we're doing. Um, I mean, we spend a whole, I spend a lot of time talking about, uh, you know, why we do the things we do. And it's, you know, time and time again, we see um, people that just are so far removed from uh, animal agriculture, just agriculture in general, that, um, that, you know, education is key. And uh, I guess with different branding programs and stuff like that, I mean, they're taking the time to, to talk to these people, but I mean, that takes money. Right. Do you think, how do you feel about some of these branding programs? Have you ever had somebody that like is a ground beef customer and has been buying your stuff for six months, come up to you and say, Hey, is this certified Angus? No, I haven't. You ever had anybody care what color wrapper was on that ground beef? No. Or if they had horns, they don't really care. Sometimes that's a, another added value is a good horned cow skull. What do you get for him? Oh, we get a couple hundred bucks for him. How do you get them to the people that want them? That's my biggest problem. I have people want offering absurd amounts of money. The problem is they're in California or in you know Minnesota or Chicago or, or something. I'm like, I can sell it to you for that, but it's going to cost that again to put it in a box and send it to you. Yeah, it's just it's just kind of word of mouth. I mean. Um, I mean, we don't ship any beef products in the mail or through UPS or anything like that. It's all home delivery, delivered by myself. Um, sometimes, uh, my wife helps and, uh, you know, on real busy days or we'll go to different, we'll go different directions, but, um, it's easy for us to just throw a cow skull in if, if they want, um, we don't butcher a whole lot of horned cattle skulls or cattle right now. Um, still trying to work out the kink. We recognize the value of having horned cows in our uh, breeding program, but we aren't. Now you're getting them back from the from the slaughter plant, right? Yeah, I have somebody that on the side will clean them up for us. You just take them on a fence post for two years and they get clean. Yeah, we that's, like that's a little slower return on the money than you're probably interested in. Though. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, he European mounts them, bleaches them, cleans them up, glues the horns back on. Nice, nice. But, mine, mine like that have so far been restricted to the ones that have expired in the pasture that have yep. gone and found. Yep, yep. We got a couple of those, and people are interested in those too. And you know, that's kind of that's. That's kind of something else that nobody talks about, about these, you know, cheap horned cattle that nobody else likes to buy at the sale barn. Yeah, she might have cost me 300 bucks. Mm-hmm. She had a calf in her that she's going to wean. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm going to have that calf. And then when she dies, her horns are worth 300 bucks. <laughs> yeah, her horns are worth probably more than what she was. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I will add, though, that like when we go to the barn or we buy these undervalued cows, um, it, horns are colored. I mean, most of those, I mean, all of them, unless I know exactly where they came from, they don't end up in our meat program, and that's because we run an antibiotic-free program, and I can't guarantee that they they don't. They've never had a shot or never licked it out of a mineral tub or ate it off a bunk or something like that. I feel that 100%. So we got to we gotta take, you know, when we buy them, that has to be factored in our price because if we're not going to, if we got to sell them for some reason, if they're mean, they're wild, for, you know, we have to buy them based off the resale value, um, whether we get a calf out of them or not. So um, most of the time we're buying these crossbred Coriani cows, and a lot of them have South Pole in them. And we're sourcing them just from a couple guys that fit our program. So if something comes up open or like that, it can it can actually roll into our business. South Poles with Corrientes. We've heard that before somewhere. Yeah, they make pretty nice little <laughs> cows. Hopefully I'll get to see some in a couple of years. Yeah. There. Uh, we got our first set of, I guess they'd be half and half. They have this uh, spring to South Pole Bulls. And that's when we figured out there's a big difference in in genetics as far as grass goes. I mean, without I mean, the one thing about EPDs are you know they do provide a consistency, you know, so you can look at them and it, they do kind of help true up a calf crop, right? So because it's data, and yeah. with data you can get, um, you know, you can kind of look at it and and say, well, this bull should work, right? I mean, there's going to be outliers, but having having the data, the EPDs basically have helped people keep stuff consistent, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I mean... Yeah, I mean... I'm not saying that I agree with it or I buy... I don't buy paper, papered bulls or buy because of EPDs, but... I, I can see EPDs being a valuable comparison tool within that same group that's all measured under those same consistent things. But taking EPDs from, you know, from a breeder in California and comparing them to a breeder in New York, yeah, that's that that might give you issues. And I think that regardless of what the EPDs say, you know, I I prefer that a bull be sourced as close to me as possible. Mm-hmm. And on as similar of a program as yeah. possible. Yeah, and and so we buy bulls like that, right? But we do see problems in calf crop, so inconsistency in our calf crop because you know we can buy bulls that look that fit exactly what they need to do, but they may not have you know some sort of data, or they could be just like man, it was just a smoking calf this year, but the cows had dinks on top end or bottom end, you know, on before or after, and she just happened to have a, a great, great calf. We've run into some of that problem. We're starting to look more into um, breeders and stuff like that. I mean, 
but it's just all part of a learning curve and it could be on the cow side too sometimes i feel like that learning curve approach is vertical like you know february 2021 we got two weeks of negative (laughs) below zero with snow and ice Mm -hmm. i feel like my learning curve maybe was vertical during that week and then you know there's there's a lot of times that i felt that way since that it's just man am i ever gonna get this there's just do you ever get that there's just days that you feel so dumb you shouldn't even get out of bed yeah i would say that just learning i mean it's so different than what everybody else is doing it's hard to you know go down to the road down to the neighbor and say hey you know i'm got you know this plant growing here or need this grazed or uh it's like you're asking me is that lead plant yep is that ironweed yep and i actually know what they are because i've seen them before yeah yeah and it's and it's just like okay what's this little plant you know it's just this learning curve but a lot of it is you know no one else around you is doing it so it's hard to you know it's like a small group of people we're in so as we try to run more farm-raised bulls that fit our environment as we try to crossbreed cattle out of the norm for our area and as we try to navigate those markets i mean those are all learning curves you know like uh buying a little roped out set of calves out of like st louis like i went to st louis and i don't know how these got this guy kept these calves and i got them home into our pens that we receive in and they were some of the wildest calves i've ever been around and i don't know how he kept them in in st louis but you know it's just like learning curves like that and figuring out like you know just with a little good stockmanship and some green grass and you can get those calves turned around and they'll probably make you a pretty nice cow but i'll tell you one thing about roped out rodeo stock yeah good grass good stockmanship can really settle them in yeah and you can do that for years you can have you could take that group of cows you can be with them for years and they can be settled they can be happy with you just doing your normal routine, whether you're on foot, side by side, or if you're on a horse, because mm-hmm. they know you and they got used to you. Yeah. You bring out one cowboy that raises his voice or starts going a little bit too quick, and all your roped out stock, 80% chance they're going to fall back into their old behavior. Yeah, they're going to be. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Um, I've seen it. I mean, I've seen it happen. I've yeah. watched it happen with my cows. Yeah. So, uh, like on stuff like that, you know. It just takes a little bit of time, and um, those animals. I think cows remember everything that's happened to them. Yeah, I would say the Coriennes do. I don't know. They just seem. I don't know if they specifically would remember people, but I know that they remember events. Yeah, and they remember each other. I mean, we've had the same cows that were put together for a few years, and they came on the truck together. You know, they may have met each other on the truck you know, had a 30 minute ride and, and they're always together. You know, these, they get in these little groups and they got a memory. I, I'd say they remember everything that happened to them for the most part. And I think every, every time they get roped or run out in the pen, they know that they remember that. And, you know, when they retire from that life and they either come to my ranch or they come to your ranch, cause you know, I've ended up, I've got some of that stuff too. Mm-hmm. You know, they can really, they can integrate. Yeah. But all it takes is, is one hand 
just not paying attention or not being the stockman, not having a stock sense of knowing mm-hmm. when too much is too much and just putting a little bit too much pressure on the animal. And then they break back over into that mindset that, you know, that they were when you got them, that they're afraid to see anybody even walk out to the pasture. Yeah. You know, we walked through mine today. Yeah, that was crazy. <laughs> there wasn't, oh, about got attacked. One yeah. of them tried to eat your pocket. Yeah, how big of a paddock were we in, too? They didn't even... Um, I think it's like 145 acres. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They've only been in there for like a week. Oh, yeah, but they're standing right there, and we could walk around them. How many guys' herds could we get out around here and walk out into a 145-acre paddock and have the cows just lick off our pockets without a feed truck? Probably probably not very many of them. Yeah. Sure. I mean, everybody the round or everybody that's between my place and here that I know um, that could – no, I don't know anybody we could do that between here and there. Yeah, without, you know, walking around. Yeah, and without. among them. Yep. And you can drive through a cow, but, I mean, it's a, something to have somebody in a, str- you know, stranger show up and get out and walk through them. That's what, I mean, that's one fun thing, you know, if people come out to a farm tour and they get on a, on a move, you know, I can put them 10 feet from the gate, from a 16-foot gate, and they can just get their video camera and, you know, 200, 250 head will just walk by them. As long as they don't move. Yeah. Just had, don't move. Yeah, I had one guy uh, brought him out, and about halfway through, <coughs> he was videotaping, and he ended up almost right in the middle of the gate opening. And so they were just, you know, they were just going by him on both sides. and Getting stressy and getting fast. <laughs> a little bit, but for the most part, I mean. It probably looked good on camera. Yeah, he, he, liked, <laughs> he thought that was cool. That was Good stockmanship does not look good on camera. That's it, really boring to watch. Yeah, but that's my probably my favorite thing about running cattle. I love the sorting and the handling of it, and the feeding, the you know, moving poly wire and seeing what they eat. And so it sounds like you're not doing a, like a typical Missouri grazing operation. So I guess let's back up. Tell me what's typical of your neighbors and what they do, what kind of their operations look like, and then tell me how you're different. Um, well, typical, I guess, would would be um, probably multiple paddocks with, uh, you know, if they have 200 acres. Let's see, my grandpa had 200 acres. We'll use him as an example. Um, he had two, three, four paddocks, you know, and then a hay field. You know, he'd bale the hay, and then he'd graze graze them all, and then we would feed hay in the wintertime. And that's probably what most people have. They probably have some sort of paddocks, and they move some cows. And, you know, they might have one reel just to have a reel and put it out there. But for the most part, they're going to have hay baled off their farm. Um, might Some people might buy buy their hay or have it custom baled, but a lot of guys have the hay equipment and are baling it. And, um, you know, four years ago, I would have been caught dead with a roll of poly wire. Really? I would have told you it was useless. Yeah, you're wasting your money. And now I wouldn't not have five of them re- laying around. Yeah. I, half or a quarter mile of poly wire mm-hmm. on a reel ready to go? Yeah. Oh, I- you have a defense blowout? Let me go grab a reel. And I think more people in our area are do have that because our farm oh, store has that. But we need to move from this pasture to this one across this one. Grab a reel, make a lane. Yep. 
I mean, it's, it's, I, I carry one with me pretty often. Like, um, there's even a couple water traps. Like we drove mm-hmm. past today. Um, I have a couple water traps where like my cable infrastructure has just become not workable and it's so much easier just to take a reel down there and I can do the gate. I mean, it, it, it's, yeah. faster and easier to build the gate or build a watering trap with a reel. It's faster to move it around. Mm-hmm. And then when I'm done with it, I could just pick it up, put it back in the gator and take it back to the shop. Yep. Well, what, how come you don't have a water trap? How come you don't have any wire around your water trap? Cause I don't have any cows in here. There's no reason to have it. It's just makes it a little bit easier for me to drive through and get around the place. Yep. Yep. And so they kind of run, you know, just these paddocks and they'll move them as they see the grass disappearing. And then, you know, kind of have a plan like we calve in this field, we hay this field, we feed in this field. Um, this is the field we winter in until it gets muddy, and then we go to this where we're going to winter, you know. So uh, just a lot of – I'd say uh, that would be kind of the norm around us. Um, maybe some, you know, some strip grazing we're trying um, to – to teach and educate, you know, our neighbors and just by example, I mean. Okay, so what are you calling strip grazing? Um, I would say where they just give the cow a day or a day to two to three days worth of feed at a time and then they roll up a poly wire and have that that next that next chunk of feed. So still, so some flavor, so it's a flavor high density. Would you call it high density? Uh, well, to an extent, I right? guess. Because what's high density? What would you call high density in your country? For reference, I would say that high density here starts at about twenty five thousand pounds an acre of uh, cattle. Yeah, yeah, and see, like we for one day. Yeah, so I mean, we could get up to a million for for a couple hours um, for a day. I don't really. I just know what it takes my herd to to feed them. I don't measure it out. Uh, so I would say, like on our mixed group of cows, a, that a day of feed would be probably two acres of grass, and that's uh, two hundred and twenty head. So two hundred and twenty head. When we'll just say they average eight hundred because we'll have you know. Okay, you, so. For those at home following along with their own calculator, 220 times 8 times 0.3, that's 176,000 pounds on the hoof. And what is 3%? Oh. So the 3% is going to be consumption, body weight consumption. So that's, we need 5,280 pounds. We need a mile of grass, 5,280 pounds of grass per day. So if they're on two acres per day, you probably have a minimum of about 2,750 pounds of forage per acre that you're taking off. We'll go with that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, two acres, if you have, if you have 220, 800 pounders on two acres for a day, you're grazing about 2,750 pounds of grass per acre. That's what they're taking out of there. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's like, that's like a bale and a half for, for you. hay type people. Yeah. A bale and a half a day. Easy. 
round bale. 1,600 pounds round bale? Yeah. I, well, so our round bales would be probably 1,000. But Oh, you guys have the midget balers. Four by fives. Yeah. Four by five bale, my herd will eat eight bales a day, 8,000 pounds of feed a day. I think we were figuring, yeah. Yeah, that's about right. I mean, that 220, yeah, that's about right. Okay. Well, that's good. I'm right on target. I figure I figure one of my 1,600-pound bales is 40 cow days. Yeah. But, like, back to kind of figuring a strip, I mean, a lot of it's eye. I use a lot of my eye. If I don't give them enough one day, you know, I give them a little more the next. If I give them too much, then I, you know, it's just kind of constant adjustment and observation. I mean, that's the key to a lot of this is, is observation and because I get that question a lot. How do you measure grass? How do you figure out how big your paddock can be? Yeah. I mean, you can use a grazing stick. I don't. I I just basically look at, you know, use my use my eye. I mean, I don't get it right. I mean, there's sometimes it's overgrazed, probably more times than not. But you feel less worse about overgrazing 2 acres. Yeah. Out of a 200-acre pasture than you would overgrazing a 20-acre pasture. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it, it's a lot easier for me to make a mistake on a small scale like that when we're strip grazing or, you know, ultra-high-density daily moves, whatever your term of the week is, whatever. But you will move in every day. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to mess up on your grass read. You're going to have a bad day. And yep. it's a lot easier to recover from on the strip grazing on daily moves than – with any with a kind of holistic adaptive planned grazing you know like kind of like i guess that's what i'd call what i'm doing this year like more of a holistic adaptive planned grazing system yeah and that's all about yeah like i said learning observation i mean when we started out it was what rotational grazing and then it was mob grazing then it was strip grazing and then then it's take all grazing and it's mig yeah it yeah, we we practice adaptive grazing. It's uh has to be adaptive to our lifestyle for their, you know, for I think there's too many terms yeah. that are used interchangeably that nobody's really got a that there's not a consensus definition on. Yeah, so we try to I mean, on on average our cows get moved daily. Uh every 24 hours if you'd average out. Sometimes we're moving every 2 hours with ultra stock density just really trying to get some trampling down sometimes we're moving you know every 12 hours sometimes we move a paddock every two uh two days maybe it's five days if we're implementing some polywire but we're trying to keep the cow herd moving and and a lot of it has to do with maturity of our forage season seasonality springtime you know we're moving bigger chunks of ground faster you know, then into the summertime, we're slowing way down and, and moving s- slower across a paddock, you know, on the paddock. And we shoot for roughly 10 acres. And, uh, you know, it might take us three days, four days to get across that paddock right now. But in the summertime, we did it in 8 to 12 hours right. in the spring. So is it dry over there? You guys dealing with drought? Um, we are drier. We've missed... Uh, we've missed rains that our neighbors have gotten when st louis got the 12 inches and so we only got about two but over the course of that time 12 is more than i've had in the last 12 months yeah it was crazy (laughs) um 
Yeah, they got a lot of water. Yeah, I, 12 inches in one storm, like even if it was 12 inches in 24 hours, I might be, I, I think we'd see some runoff at that rain. Yeah, they, I mean, if you could imagine their compaction in St. Louis. I can imagine it all ran off. Yeah, I can imagine with all the farm fields around there and all the all the heavy tillage corn and heavy clay soils, I imagine it all just went down the river. Well, yeah, I also meant like road compaction. You don't get much water absorption in with roads and buildings. That's a good point. There's like, yeah, concrete has zero water holding yeah, there capacity. Is, there is no soil <laughs> aggregates in a, in concrete. <laughs> zero moisture infiltration rate in downtown. Yeah. That's true. That is true. There, there's a lot of acres that are like that. Yeah. Houston figured that out a couple of years ago. Yeah. So, um, yeah, um, we're not as dry as like South Central Missouri, but we're right on the edge of it. But I think they've been getting some getting us some well needed rain. So, what would your your drought plan be? Um, we kind of when we started getting drier, we halted kind of our normally we try to buy some stalkers to background in the summer for some grass for some grass customers for their meat businesses kind of started we halted that um we also when that's kind of our main thing you know normally we take on quite a few cattle as these uh, fall fall weanlings come to market we've been buying we would buy those we halted that we normally would buy some uh fall bred cows you know we we halted that um sold some cows this uh late spring to different people to get their uh herd started that's one thing we we do we try to um sell some turned around coriani so if we a lot of people are interested in this coriani and uh, the south pole breed up but don't necessarily want to source the coriennes. I mean, there's what those cows, I mean, that's a learning habit, right? They're, they got horns and people don't want to mess with the horns and people don't know where to buy them. Or, so we'll buy them. Oh, you don't need to worry about them horns. They're gentle. <laughs> They're just big grass puppies. For the most part. until you. And we, we've calved a few. And, I mean, and the wild ones are the ones that stand. We had one, our first coriennes to ever calve stood on our all four feet on the four-wheeler and so we try to get those types sorted off and 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 we send those down the road to a to a guy that's just that buys butcher cows so we try to uh, get in coriennes and we'll we'll clean them up as far as uh, most of the time coriennes need a warming so we do warm them once and then we'll, we'll that's all mine have been wormed yeah exactly once <laughs> yeah i just got to get the arena dirt flushed out of them and uh, then we'll put them on grass, and and we'll make sure they're calm, and they they'll stay behind poly wire, and if and that they can be around. I mean, and other than that, you know, if somebody wants some a few coriani cows to uh, start their herd with, you know, I feel pretty confident that you'd get a you'd get a nice started cow that you know can be turned out. What do you say to the people that say that they'll just jump out of any fence you want to put them in? I would say I've seen one, and I mean we've had we got a hundred, hundred and fifty or so coriones. I've seen one jump out of a fence, 
but I've also seen a south pole jump out of a corral. I've seen an Angus jump over the fence. I've seen Brahmas do all kinds of crazy yeah. acrobatic stunts. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it just depends on the cow. There's, it's not a breed thing. I, I would agree with that 100%. They are a little more athletic than most breeds. Mm-hmm. You know, they're a little smaller, maybe a little more muscly, and might be a little easier for them to clear a four-wire just because that you just because they have that reputation like yeah i've seen i've seen a 2000 pound angus bull clear a five wire fence all it takes is motivation yeah if you have a nice herd that's handled quiet mm-hmm. they want to stay in it if you don't let them get hungry yeah they want to stay where they're at like mm-hmm. the only time i have any problems with my cows wanting to go anywhere usually they want to get on the road ditch yeah. And go to town. Like they never want to get onto the neighbors for some reason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they always want to get out on the road ditch though. Yeah, and I've only seen uh two jump. I one I don't know how she got out. The other one uh I know she she must have jumped out because when I went to put her back, I got the gate open and she walked next to the gate and jumped over the fence. But it's not. They're not jumping over my poly wire. They're jumping over the four strand barbed wire fence. Yeah, that's like shoulder high, but you know that waist high poly wire. Yeah. For some reason, they're just terrified of it. And and it's you know she was just out on eating a little bit, and you know I'm the only one that's got horned cows, so chances are when they say there's there's a cow out, I don't even have to ask. How do you know it's mine? Uh, that's what I should have asked the sheriff when they called this morning. Yeah. Does it have horns? Yeah. Nope. Well, then it's probably not mine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so for the listeners, this um, August stayed here in Pratt last night, and so I drove up this morning to do something against my principles and eat McDonald's breakfast. Kind of a rare treat. Don't judge me too harshly. And I was still on my way up here. I was about 10 miles from town, and I got a phone call from Sheriff's Dispatch. And they had a report of a calf out about three miles away from headquarters. By the time we got there, like an hour and a half later, somebody had already take care of it. It wasn't mine, but I should have asked the dispatcher if the if it had horns or not, because uh, that could have reduced my stress level a lot this morning. Yeah. Yep. Or was it painted? Yeah. Is it colored and have horns? Nope. Well, then it ain't mine. <laughs> yeah, it's easy. It can yeah, when they say the black cow is out. Does she have horns? No. Well, chances are it's this guy's cow. And I get 15, 20 years ago when there were other colors of cattle in the country, in the world besides black that people like to have, that maybe color was more of an important distinction. Now it's like if somebody says there's a cow out, you almost automatically assume it to be black. Mm-hmm. And if it's not, you know, that's kind of like a novelty. <laughs> yeah. Yep, the cow I got called on two days ago was it it was out and i said well how do you know it's mine i said it's got he said it's uh white bellied white topped red on the sides white face and it has horns i said that yeah i'll be right there sounds familiar (laughs) (laughs) i'm on it i don't get too many calls like that i've um this is my second call in a knock on wood i'm not gonna even say it's my second call in a, in a in a while, so I mean I don't get called a ton, but we also. Do you have good neighbors that you know if they see something out that they'll stop and help you, or they just drive by and wave? Uh, well, I mean, 
It just depends. Most of the time, yeah, they'll let me know. Well, I got good neighbors that keep an eye on stuff. Um, but we're all kind of a try to stay tight and be good to our neighbors. I mean, some of our neighbors get to hunt. You get to hunt, you know, but it, we want to know when the cow, if a cow's out. Most of the time they'll put them away and just say, hey, this cow is out. Take a picture of it and say we put them away or she's locked up in the corral or something like that. So my worry is we got a hundred acre cornfield and my cows are trained to eat when they move so if they get out i know right (laughs) i know right where they're going and that guy's expressed his uh extreme displeasure at your horned cattle uh his (laughs) opinion that cows don't belong on any crop ground okay so um Probably an older gentleman been farming the same way for 40-odd years? Uh, no, he's probably a 40-year-old gentleman. and uh, I don't know. Just a different context, maybe. Well. I don't know. Maybe he listened to his college professors. Not everybody's heard of the principles of soil health yet, apparently. Nope. That's apparent. In a lot of situations. Education, I mean, we talked a little bit about it. I think education's, you know, I mean, so important. And So what, what, are some, what are some good resources that have been very help, helpful for you? Um, I mean, Facebook's got a great network and a bunch of groups. Um, I, I podcast quite a bit. I do Audible. Um, any good podcast you listen to? Oh, yeah, there's a few of them. Um, Ranching Reboot. Nah, that, that, don't worry about that one. Oh, okay. Working Cows, how's that one? That one's all right. All right. Herd Quitter. Listen to Herd Quitter. Work, herd Quitter's good. Um, then I'm a Joe Rogan experience guy. I have to get a little bit of experience. I'm uh, I'm on the JRE train, too. I'm... I'm probably three months behind, though. Yeah, I'm pretty behind. I've been caught up in audiobooks lately. I catch up on Joe under winter. Yeah. I catch up on Joe in the winter. About springtime, we're caught up, and then summertime, and I start falling behind again. Yep, so I audiobook quite a bit lately. Um, Any good ones? Um. Yeah, one of my favorites, Cattle Kingdom by Christopher Nolting. Um, uh, let's see. Yeah, we were talking of, about Empire of the Summer Moon on the way up yeah, here. Yeah, that's crazy. That's right down in this area. Yeah. Um, so Empire of the Summer Moon, they talk about, that's a book about the um, the rise and the fall of the Comanche Indians. Correct. Yep. For those that are unfamiliar. And where my ranch is located, I, I feel like I'm kind of in the extreme northeast area of where the Comanches would have been. Yeah. And it's kind of a meeting area between several different tribes. So it's, I've kind of understood that the Medicine Lodge area from the native perspective as it wasn't an area that was really inhabited by one tribe, that it was shared by several for the healing properties of the water. Okay, so let me explain that. So I live in the Red Hills. I go by Red Hills Rancher. Another name for the area is the Jip Hills. So you saw it today, August, the the white cap rock feature in the hills. Well, that's calcium sulfide, and it gets into the water. It makes the water hard. 
and it makes the water kind of function like a laxative. Really? Yeah. So be careful drinking the tap water. <laughs> I haven't done it yet. I don't think I'll start. I got a long drive home. This water's good. Water at my house is okay. Water down at my dad's is an acquired taste. <laughs> we'll put it that way. Um, so the Indians kind of felt that the water here had some had some medicinal properties. So th- this was more of a shared area. Like mm-hmm. arrowheads, I don't think I've ever found an arrowhead actually on the ranch. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Not sure why. Just haven't found any there. Mm-hmm. You know, is that is it just due to terrain and it wasn't good hunting terrain? Yeah. When they were in charge? I don't know. You know, I'd love to have a crystal ball or have a time machine and be able to go back and observe and see what things are like. Yeah. Um, or see what things are really like. Because w- the crap we've written in the history books and that, that we kind of like guessed at, mm-hmm. and even the stuff, some of the stuff you and I were talking about earlier today driving around, we're just guessing. Yeah. Yeah. And w- just, yeah, whatever somebody wrote down and. Just because there wasn't any of this animal that one day you walked through that area, the next day, maybe a whole herd of them came through and and had a party and you never knew about it. Yeah. And you'll write down, didn't see a single rabbit the whole trip. <laughs> you know, that doesn't mean they weren't there. That just means you didn't see them. Yep. Yep. 100%. Um, another resource, back onto your question, I mean, uh, Soil Health Academy understanding ag i've just finished my second soil health academy that's what brought me to kansas uh they did a collaboration with uh, dallas mount looking forward to going to ranching for profit here probably in the next year there's no ding there because i'm on a i'm not in the right studio sorry guys and uh just a bunch of other local stuff we we are intentional about learning try to I mean, we try to spend a couple thousand bucks a year just on continuing our education so we can we can be the best stewards of the land, produce the best product out there. Continuing ed and training should be a line item on everybody's budget. Yeah, and I think for for most people it's not. And Tragically, yes. And, I mean, you can get stuck in your ways if without well, learning, but... Really, really easy. Matter of fact, a pushback I hear is well, anybody can write a book and anybody can tell you something. So, uh, you just, I don't know how to respond to that, but that's true. That's very true. And there's a lot of people that can do and mm-hmm. can't write. And there's a lot of people that can write and not do. But finding the person that can do and write about it effectively, mm-hmm. you know, then you get an Aldo Leopold, you know, then you get somebody that gets remembered for a hundred or 200 years. You get an Alan Savory that's yep. written a book, yep. you know, even though he's changed it 15 times, it's still there. Yeah. But he, I mean, you got to change it, right? Cause I mean, as you learn more, if you don't acknowledge that you got it wrong or that you haven't learned more, I mean, you, that's why you get I mean, the that's called a tenured professor, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> but yeah, the, like the fourth edition, you know, I mean, you can't, I mean, you 
there's so many changes from second to third and from third to fourth. You know, I can understand why some of his critics are like, well, he keeps changing everything. Well, that's not settled. It's not static. I mean, it's a living system. We're still participating in it. We're still learning. Yep, 100%. I mean, it's not the... Like, how arrogant is it to think that, you know, a person in his 20s, 30s, or 40s does research, comes to a conclusion, Mm -hmm. and over the next 30 or 40 years, absolutely nothing can ever come up to challenge that conclusion. Because they build their whole career, their whole life, their whole identity around that legend that they built, around Mm -hmm. that that body of research they did that maybe now if they went back and looked at it, wouldn't be correct or would be an incorrect conclusion or there's a new way to study the data that would tell them something different. They're not going to want to do that. They're not going to want to update that and find out something different because they're going to want to defend their bedrock of their identity. Mm Mm-hmm as vigorously as they can. Yeah. And they're not even going to, they can't even accept that there's a new idea or that somebody else may be more correct than them Mm. because in their mind, this was their thing. They did this 20 years ago. This is what they're known for. And that's the hill they're going to die on. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. You know, we, we have guys like, you know, we talked about Ray Archuleta. Yep. Okay. So for those that don't know, don't know Uncle Ray, he worked for the government for a lot of years, right? And he was kind of constricted on what he could say. Mm-hmm. And as soon as he retires, he goes to work for Understanding Ag, and he's, you know, he's making people at conferences get up and do stretches at seven o'clock in the morning talking about mycorrhiza fungi. Yeah, archelotosphere. <laughs> yeah, you know, we need we need a lot more Ray Archelettas in the world. I think we need a lot more people that take that risk of being different, right? The Dallas Mounts, yeah. Dr. Alan Williams, the people that, you know, have a job with the university or a tenured professor, but then recognize that things have happened and changed and we're going the wrong direction or, you know, that some of this stuff might not be true. And then standing up and, and doing something about it. I mean, it's, it seems like those of us that have been, not those of us, it seems like some some folks that are, quote, on, that have been fringe, mm-hmm. like Dallas Mount, okay? Like, Dallas Mount at the NCBA convention two years ago would have gone over about as well as a turd in a punch bowl. Mm-hmm. I mean, you go talk to the guys at NCBA about putting profit into ranching, they're probably going to laugh at you. Maybe that's just my feeling, Okay. Maybe I just made that up. But it seems like that's really changing. It seems like those of us that the industry has considered mavericks and outliers, that they're starting, that the mainstream is starting to listen to us now. They're turning around, they're looking, and they're going, okay, hay's expensive, cake's expensive. There's no grass. Now what do I do? Yeah. What do we do? You got the... <laughs> you know, I, I bet you there's people out there. I mean, uh, what I tell you, we're, we're three or four weeks from recording to release date. On release day, there will still be guys west of here that don't know we're in drought. That's kind of scary. I mean, 
do you th- would you would you agree that there's guys around here that we drove past today that don't know we're in a drought? I would say unless they looked at the drought map, but but I don't know. I mean, it it looks dry. I mean, it but it doesn't seem like any any uh management strategies have changed, right? I mean, and I haven't seen many. Yeah, and you know, the, they're stocked up. I mean, they're feeding hay. I mean, we're in August. You weren't feeding hay, and you had you had quite a bit of grass and quite a few cows, a lot more than I've seen uh, on some of these places that have zero grass. Well, I mean, I did kind of see the drought coming. Yeah, and it's... And I did destock early. I came in light because I don't want to feed hay. Yeah. It's expensive. It's expensive to make. I don't have a tractor. I don't have a baler. Diesel's over, still over $4 a gallon. Mm-hmm. You know, who knows what it's going to be by the time this comes out. It might be $3 again. Who knows? That's hope. Yeah. <sighs> That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Um, yeah. That, I, that I, you were intentional with every, every your action plan, and you stuck to it, and you had a plan. You had a game plan. You saw the, the markers, you know. I'm sure you had My something. plan's not to feed hay. You know, my, yeah. when I make my grazing plan in the spring, mm-hmm. my grazing plan gets me through next winter like when i start making a grazing plan in april in in march to start in april yeah okay that grazing plan is valid from april 1 to march 31 because mm-hmm. i not i don't need to just worry about the grass that i can eat this summer i've got to plan the grass that i grow during that really narrow 120 to 150 day window mm-hmm. right i've got to plan and budget that grass for 365 days a year and you know that's a call we're making in February, March. Yeah. That you you got to live with it for a while, which is a big part of why I like custom grazing because mm-hmm. you know I can float that custom grazing number up a lot easier. Yeah. You know I I can change that number up a lot easier than I can change my cow number. Than I can than I can alter my heifers right. Yeah. I mean, I've got to have I. I've, Long term, mm-hmm. you know, when I started down this road two years ago, knew it was a long term deal. Didn't have the money to fully stock the ranch with my own cows, and that would never be part of the plan anyway. Because if you're fully stocked with your own stuff, then what do you do? Then what's your drought reserve? Do you have another ranch somewhere else, or do you have something that you can get rid of that's not going to cost you a lot of money? Yeah, we've been selling overvalued stuff. So at the time when we were selling, we were selling steers were overvalued, so we were selling stuff that would go to our meat business so but i mean or you know in a drought we've been working on this cow herd you know trying to have the ultimate low low input cow that survives in our environment on you know fescue grass and salt rock salt so uh yeah and those are tough decisions right but a plan helps a plan helps you make them for sure. Introducing C90 Ocean Minerals. C90 offers complete nutrient support for today's farm and ranch. With over 90 minerals and trace elements in nature's perfect balance, C90 remineralizes soil, increases pasture quality, and elevates the wellness of your herd. Enjoy improved drought resistance, increased pasture protein and RFV values, and the elimination of pink eye and foot and hoof rot. 
Originally discovered by Dr. Maynard Murray, C90 is the only product that meets his standards for sea energy agriculture, including a living ocean source and elevated amounts of macro and trace elements. Freshly created in the Sea of Cortez and OMRI certified, C90 is free from pollutants and contaminants, including microplastics. Visit C90.com to learn more today. That's S-E-A-90.com. C90 is available through distributors across the U.S., including over 200 tractor supply locations. Click the link in the show notes to find the dealer nearest you. We're always looking to grow our network. Give us a call or email today and be sure to mention that Ranching Reboot sent you. Please check the show notes for all the contact information. Now back to this week's episode. Well, like if you get rid of all your um, custom cows because you get droughted out, I mean, I'm assuming some of your cash flow comes from them. So mm-hmm. how, do you, how do you work that in? Most of my cash flow comes from customer cows. Yeah. Um, basically, all my cash flow comes from customer cows. Mm-hmm. So when you're destocking forty percent, yeah, it hurts. Yeah. Um. So, do you? So if that point comes, do you have to sell? What's What's your plan? You know, do you have to sell your your Coriani cows to keep your custom cows? Have I'm you- not to that point, <laughs> 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 and I don't think I ever would be. Um, not with the amount of grass I saw out there, but no, I'm not. I'm not worried about running out of grass. My problem right now is like affordability of winter protein and deciding how much of it I'm going to feed. Mm-hmm. Okay, grass. I'm. I'm. I say I'm swimming in grass. I'm swimming in grass for my 80 AU or so herd. Mm-hmm. Okay, throw another 80 in there, and it's going to start to look pretty lean. Yeah, you know, I could carry my 80. My 80, I've got plenty of grass to get me to April. And then I could come in with all kinds of customer cows in April and make money next year. I just got to get there. And getting there means a little bit of winter feed bill because I, I just can't get through the winter without without feeding some protein. Yeah, We, we rode around on some of the best stuff that I have today, You know, some mm-hmm. creek bottom. Am I going to grow some cool season grass down there? Yeah. Yeah, I am. If it rains... Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> Which, a big if. You know, I just kind of planned on that last year, and I know what kind of moisture we got last year through the, through, and I know what kind of cool season grass I had last year, and what kind of protein I fed. Mm-hmm. I know they can get by on not a whole lot. Like, yeah, I just fed some alfalfa bales every couple of days. Mm-hmm. Like, never more than one bale of alfalfa every couple of days and then as the season went on that went to one every three and then one every four days mm-hmm. so they didn't get much no they just got enough and you know if, if we're really trying to drive the low input ethic and the low input mentality you know continue driving those inputs to zero you mm-hmm. know and if i'm driving inputs to zero you know what what are the inputs that i'm still choosing to use and you know, every year it's a little bit different, you know, how you're going to work the math of getting the right amount of protein to your animals and what's the best delivery mechanism. You know, is it a liquid product? Is it a tub product? Is it a cube product? Or is it a bale product, mm-hmm. right? You know, what's the most cost effective to get the protein into the cows that they need to be able to perform? For me, it's more than that, okay? Because I always, you know, I'm on this low input train 
And I'm always preaching low inputs, low inputs, low inputs. And for the last year and a half, I've been talking about supply chains, about shortening your supply chains. Mm -hmm. Okay. Maybe inputs necessarily aren't that bad if they come from next door. Yeah. Or if they come from, or if there's only maybe one or two hands between it and you, Mm -hmm. and it's a pretty short chain. Like, you know, uh, what am I saying here? Like, um, so alfalfa. I can feed alfalfa in bales. That's a one-handling process. Yep. No, there, there's 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 not a middleman in there. There's not another value-add process that needs to be done from the time that it gets baled to the time that I feed it. Okay? Um, yeah, you could take that alfalfa and pelletize it. Mm-hmm. That doesn't increase anything. It just adds a little bit of cost. Maybe, you know, makes it a little more efficient to store transport. Maybe the cost comes down a little bit. You could put about anything you want in a cube, dry distillers, grains, cottonseed holes, whatever. Okay. But I always want to consider that source. Yeah. Do I really want to feed cottonseed holes to my cows after everything that gets sprayed on those cotton seeds on that cotton? I mean, I'm not asking you if you would. I'm just saying it's really it'd be really hard for me to think about wanting to feed cottonseed cake to my cows, knowing how many times chemicals are sprayed on cotton. Yeah. So we not only have to think about what we're feeding, what it's going to cost and what the cheapest way to get the protein in the cow is. It's like, what's the other junk that's riding along with it? You know, what else might be in here? We don't necessarily want. And, you know, you look at a tub, like a cooked tub type product. Mm Mm-hmm. That's got a balanced mineral package in it and probiotics and molasses and protein from this source. That's an industrial byproduct tub. You might as well go down to Burger King and get a get a you know get a Beyond Burger or whatever they call it. Mm-hmm. You know, get one of those fake meat burgers. Are there some tubs that are probably okay? Yeah. But I go back to the thing that Steve Campbell likes to talk about. Are we feeding the right kind of minerals? Is copper, copper? Is magnesium, magnesium? Is cadmium, cadmium? Right? Mm-hmm. You know, is it bioavailable? Is is Are the mineral packages that we're putting into this tub, are they bioavailable? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the feed salesman says they are, right? Well, of course the feed salesman says that. He's trying to sell you feed. You know, who do you trust, though? I don't know. I guess ancient products. You know, products without... Pure products. Pure products. Yeah. You know, things like sea salt. Salt. Yep. You know, we think about, you know, the cattle 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. They didn't, they didn't go stand in a feedlot and get fed corn for 120 days. They didn't get a total mixed ration. We didn't get to feed them, you know, we didn't have sodium bicarbonate available in large quantities to feed them to control acidosis. Yep. <laughs> we didn't have any of this stuff. Yeah. And cattle seem to get along just fine. It seems like the more we try to keep, like, the more we can find them in feedlots, the more we try to tune these TMRs, and the more we mess with them, the more problems we have with them, with getting sick, you know, having pink eye, foot rot outbreaks, um, having... You know, things like BRD, things like happened a couple months ago out west, out in western Kansas where they had an overnight heat burst and 10,000 head of cattle died. But how are we going to feed the world? I don't care. <laughs> I don't care about feeding the world. 
then who do you care about feeding? I want to feed my family and I want to feed my community. I don't care about feeding the world anymore. I don't care about feeding the starving pygmies in New Guinea anymore. God bless them. <laughs> we live in the middle of food deserts. You in Missouri, me here in Kansas. As we sit here in downtown Pratt, we're in a food desert. There's a feedlot just north. We're surrounded by corn, beans, cotton, and wheat. There's a little bit of Milo and some, some sorghum sedan-based feed that we saw up here. Mm-hmm. Where's the lettuce? Where's the carrots? Where's the sheep? Where's the goats? Where's the chickens? I'd say where's the hogs, and I almost did, but there's a, oh, yeah. there's a confinement hog barn about five miles south of town. I still wouldn't count that as a hog farm. Yeah, and how many? I mean, it's industrial hog farm. Coming straight to your grocery store here in town. Probably none. I mean, they're they're going from that hog farm back to an industrial hog plant mm-hmm. to a you know yeah supply chains. There's very little that's grown in this area, that's consumed in this area. It's almost all exported, and American farmers pat yourselves on the back. Every American farmer grows enough food to feed 160 people. Great job. Mm-hmm. Who's eating that corn? Who's eating those soybeans? Who's eating that cotton? Oh, we clothe the world with our cotton. 50% of clothes that get made end up in a landfill. <laughs> now, growing all the corn and soybeans... Who are you selling it to? Who's your customer for that? You're not feeding the world with corn and soybeans. I'm sorry. You're yeah. not feeding the world. You're feeding subsidized grain to somebody else's cows in a feedlot so the packers can make money. Well, I mean, and there's also all the fructose corn products, right? Oh, yeah. Well, we got to make all these by- – we got to grow all this corn so we can you know, take it apart and make all these other products out of it. Like Doritos? Don't eat them. Okay, that's a lie. <laughs> They're too delicious. I can't stop. I can't not eat them, but I can at least not buy them <laughs> at the grocery store. Somebody offers me a bag. I'm probably not going to turn it down. <laughs> but I mean, it's nutrient density, right? That's that's not. That's a word that no one talks about in the grocery store. You don't go in and say, "Can I have your most nutrient dense pro?" Uh, produce or your most nutrient-dense meat or your most nutrient-dense bag of chips. The manager's just going to look at you like you're an idiot and hand you whatever product that's closest. Yep. You know, like nutrient density, so that can be like a tricky subject, right? Yeah. Because you got to kind of back up what you say, right? Mm-hmm. And... I'm going to say nutrient density of food isn't ain't what it used to be. Yeah. And there's a lot there's there's studies that are coming out. I think there's people waking up to that that you know, the strawberries we have now are not the strawberries we had in 1980. Yep. The avocados that everybody thinks are superfoods mm-hmm. may not be because maybe they just tested a super organic regeneratively grown avocado and these commercial avocados don't have anything in them. Like commercial like tomatoes. I almost can't stand eating a tomato from the grocery store. Tomato sauce out of a jar. Um, we made some pasta the other day at home mm-hmm. from garden tomatoes. I felt fine. I eat tomato sauce out of a can, I'll get heartburn. Yep. 
How does that work? It's crazy. I don't, yeah. You know, like, why do we need to add sugar to our tomatoes? Why, why are we adding sugar to canned tomatoes? That doesn't make any sense. Because they've got no flavor. We've bred all the flavor out. To produce. Pounds. Pounds yep. and appearance. like Consistency. Consistency, volume, and appearance with no regard to taste and no regard to nutrient density. Because we can flavor our way out of it. Just like right. yeah, yeah, Dorito dust. Yeah, you know, I'm one of the weird people. I never, I never put ranch on everything growing up. Mm-hmm. Hey, I was I was always discouraged from using a lot of salad dressings, um, and especially dipping sauces, mm-hmm. condiments. I was always really discouraged from using condiments, especially ketchup. Yep, like, I I don't eat ketchup. I noticed that at lunch today. I am one of the weird people on earth. I do not like ketchup. I will put ketchup on exactly nothing that I eat. If I was a single guy, you would not find ketchup in my refrigerator. I, it's not that I hate it. Mm-hmm. I just simply don't care for it. Because the first time I went to put ketchup on something, my dad yelled at me and he said, that's nothing but sugar. Quit eating that crap. Eat your food. You don't need to put sugar on it. Okay. That's fine. So I've just, I just never learned to put ketchup on my french fries, and I never have. So, it, like, so I was in the Navy for eight and a half years, and then when I came back here and I started to kind of reintegrate, whatever that means, back into the, the real world, um, like I'd go out to eat and I'd notice people like dipping their pizza in ranch dressing. What is this? You're putting, you're dipping your pizza in ranch dressing. That's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. And then I tried it once and I'm like, oh, that ain't bad. Now, great. Okay. This was, this was years ago before I kind of, before I jumped on the eating healthy and regenerative ag bus. Um, but yeah, there were a lot of years that I would, that I'd dip my pizza in ranch dressing. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I remembered what high fructose corn syrup was and what soybean oil was. And um, I don't do it anymore. Yeah. But it was delicious for a while. Yeah. It's good. I mean, it's uh, but sugar, right? It's flavored to be good to disguise or to help eat foods that the flavor's been taken out of, bred out of. It's, it's market research. It's Marcus research, um, focus groups, and market testing, right? Mm-hmm. So what does everybody like to eat? You know, like there's certain combinations that light up parts of your brain that we're hardwired to. You know, like the sugar, the, you know, the salty, the sweet, the crunch. You know, the, there's things that, mm, that yep. like that make our brain go nuts that we can't control. And these food companies have figured that out. And they spend millions of dollars. Yeah to hire really, really smart people to design the, like to tweak the scent of, of like peach rings candy, right? Mm-hmm. They'll hire somebody and pay them millions of dollars to tweak how the strawberry starburst tastes Yeah, they got to it. get it just perfect yep. to make you want to buy it because it's, it's like, it's lighting up all these pleasure centers in your brain. 
and they spent millions of dollars researching psychology and testing different color combinations of wrappers and packaging to see what draws the eye and what keeps the attention the most. Mm-hmm. You ever drive by and notice all the Mexican restaurants all have the same color scheme? Yeah. I mean, now that you say it, I mean, they're always brighter and fancier. There's a reason why. Because those yellow, green, red, that yellow, green, red spectrum that a lot of the Mexican restaurants use mm-hmm. makes you hungry. And you didn't even know that. I did not. Not a clue. I only know that because I watched a YouTube video on it. <laughs> <laughs> I'd read, have you read the Dorito effect? I don't know if we talked about that in my first. Uh, I, I haven't, but it, I will put that down on the list. Uh, you're not the first person to recommend Dorito effect. Um, so I've been caught up listening to, let's see, I listened to Wastelands at Mike Calicrate's recommendation. That's a book about hog farmers in eastern North Carolina and fighting and lawsuits with Smithfield and, yeah, Smithfield Foods. That's a good one. Isn't that a Chinese-owned company? Yep. Yep. Smithfield Foods, Chinese-owned company, one of the largest pork producers in the United States. Kind of like uh, kind of like JBS and Marfrig, who owns National Beef, are two of the largest beef producers, mm-hmm. and they're both Brazilian-owned. Hmm. Yeah, you wouldn't think that foreign-owned owner foreign ownership of our food supply is a national security problem, would you? Uh, I didn't think it's only only fifteen percent, though, right? Yeah, that's it. Um, so anyway. I read, uh, I didn't read, I don't read much anymore, Wastelands. I listened to Wastelands uh-huh. on Audible. And then um, the next one that I listened to was Collapse by Jared Di- No, that was, I listened to that one a while ago. Uh, where'd it go? The End of the World is Just Beginning. That was a good one. That's uh, by Peter Zihan. And that just came out back in June. And um, yeah, The End of the World is Just Beginning. That is a good book. And um, then after that, I went through Permanent Record by Ed Snowden. And I just finished that one a couple weeks, like a week ago. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of in between books. I think I'll have to go ahead and find Dorito Effect and and get that one queued up. Yeah, I'm waiting for uh, Fred Provenza's nourishment right in that coming out in the next couple months i thought he said uh well it's out but he didn't read it like the, the copy where he's reading it i think is still coming yeah out. it's coming out right yeah, in the yeah, next yeah, couple yeah. months yeah i'm looking forward to that yeah yeah fred who a wealth of information <laughs> man i could have talked to that guy all day but it all ties into back what we were just talking about our food scene and nutrient density and you know, recognizing that a strawberry is a strawberry should have the nutritional density of a strawberry. And that's basically what comes back down to, like, as we get into this, uh, these, the grazing of our cattle and they, we start changing our plant diversity and they're going around and selecting different plants and different times of the year and teaching their steers and their heifers and their bulls how to forage and what to eat and I mean, it's crazy what they'll eat now. And it's not just our Coriennes, you know, it's our commercial black cows. That, But those commercial black cows are the cows that have stayed in our system as we've pulled the 
inputs out. So they've, uh, um, you know, we've been ever since 2016, 2018, 19, we started to really start changing our management style and really pushing them hard, um, grazing, pulling the inputs, um, and really focusing on increasing our plant diversity and, and letting that cow do, do the work and fend for herself. And So you were saying that you've had some black cows for a while and they're starting to eat differently, like eat a different variety. Mm-hmm. And I've been... I've been thinking about that for a long time. Like, so, you know, we think of your basic cow-calf operation. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, your your standard middle road cow-calf operation. You're going to go stand in pasture for six months. You're going to calve in the pasture. And then you're going to come back to the pens. We know about six months old. That cow is going to be on a hay ration for basically six months out of the year until it's time to go back to grass. Mm-hmm. So that, that's pretty typical, right? So as we keep our cows in the pasture longer and longer and longer and make them work harder, mm-hmm. further make them rustle their own grub, for lack of a better term, especially during the winter when grass can be kind of lean in my part of the world, you know, lean on protein, lean on nutrition, and they've got to eat a lot to get enough mass. It, you're seeing changes in how your black cattle eat compared to your horn cattle. Um, we're just seeing that diversity. I mean, um, I mean, everybody says uh, Corianni's like a goat. I mean, some are picky, um, you know, especially if they come off of a, like an arena dirt floor where they're used to eating lawn clippings that they only get fed when they mow against the thing, you know, when they mow around the arena and blow it out into the onto the dirt, you know. Other than that, they're picking a couple weeds here and there, but. Um, when we started with these cows in 2016, our, I'm talking our original base, you know, black black cattle, and we still have a few. We have a very, very few of those left, but those generations that they've had, they're the offspring that those cows have had, and then the offspring that those cows have had, so we're talking granddaughters, Right. their, their selection is way higher than just than their grandmothers, right? Their what they eat, their diversity in in their diet is, you know, closer to what people associate the Corianni cows diet. Like they're going out and they're uh, eating yuccas. They're going out like eating. first hour in the pasture. Yeah, they're yeah. going out. They're going to the willows. Yeah, they're going. I mean, they'll have grass everywhere, but they're going to the going to the Forbes. Was that you? No, that wasn't. That was me. If you didn't hear that on a recording, there's some weird noises going around. We're not real sure if it's under us or the building next door or what. But uh, yeah. Anyway, Um, you know what's in when they go eat a willow tree, and they're eating the bark off the willow. You know what that is? mm -mm. It's a form of uh, salicylic acid. Okay. Which is the precursor to acetyl salicylic acid, which is Tylenol, hmm. anti-inflammatory, or no aspirin. aspirin, not not Tylenol, aspirin. Yeah, it's a precursor to aspirin, hmm. so it's a uh, pain relief. Interesting. Must have stepped on a thorn or something, or they just have a tummy ache. Yeah, that's crazy. I didn't. Know I don't that. know why they eat yuccas though. 
I don't either. Or like why they decide to eat leaves off a of, uh, blackberry bush or off the rose bush or or off the sumac. Yep. I I don't know. Or yeah. sagebrush. I've seen him eating sagebrush, too. I know their nutritional wisdom is way more than uh, I'll ever know about them. I, I've seen them, like, standing in big blue stem grass mm-hmm. up to, like, the mid-body mm-hmm. and watched them eat sagebrush. Yeah. I, I don't I don't understand. Uh-huh. I don't understand. Growing big blue stem is hard. Growing sagebrush is easy, so eat all the sagebrush you like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We just need more of those, right? Yeah. Uh, and I don't know. Everybody's an expert, uh, especially when it comes to Facebook and their opinions of your posts. But I had posted some blue st- big blue stem, which is pretty uncommon for our area. Um, do do and, most of your neighbors even know what that looks like? I don't think so because I saw where somebody had sprayed some in a fence row. Sounds about right. <laughs> so I doubt it but i had a comment that i might let my big blue stem get too mature and uh put put some weanland some fall weanland calves in there and they started at the seed heads and ate and ate <laughs> down they didn't even start at the bottom like where the leaves are and let me I, guess that was uh second week of september first or second week of september september no july july yeah Last what? month. Wow, you already had seed heads that early? Yeah. Huh. Yep. Okay. But it got, uh, one thing that happened was uh, we, we got dry. We got hot and dry. If I you had a lot, that made a difference. If you had a lot of early moisture, yep. and then it just quit and got hot and dry, it got real hot. that'll drive, that'll drive those plants out of, like, straight to phase three for stem and yeah. seed head. Like, my gamma grass in my yard was laid over looking for a drink um we had a i think it was a week it was a really nice week it was like 100 105 but like freakishly low humidity for our area and it was just nice to be outside what's freakishly low humidity like 50 percent for you for probably less than that. <laughs> but yeah well you don't wear it when you go outside yeah sing, single digits would be here and who 105 at five percent humidity is angry yeah it's not pleasant yeah with you yeah but then again you know i, I don't want to have 88 with 88 percent either <laughs> those days aren't fun yeah and that's probably more what we are you know or higher humidity hot but yeah so it got dry and that's when we saw a lot of these warm seasons going putting on these littler seed heads you know our kind of uh you know we call them like grease grass and quack grass and Okay. Foxtail, you know, it went to seed head, seed earlier than even some of our ragweed varieties because I keep track on pasture map, right. you know, so I can make, oh, you know, I can look back, refer, say, oh, my gosh, you know, when the ragweed's at this this picture, you know, at this presentation, this stage of growth, you know, I know my cows will eat it. So we need to pack up where we are, hike down there, get those grazed off, and then pack pack off. And uh, been using Pasture Map for that, and uh, I was looking, and I tried to scroll back, and it was like a month, month and a half early. Really? Yeah. I think everything this year is going to be a little bit late going to seed. Here. Yeah, I think that the hot temperatures and the lack of rainfall is just everything is really slow and really struggling. Mm-hmm. 
And I think we're like, things didn't even green up. Things didn't green up when we were expecting to. Like, mm. It was almost 20 days, probably, probably right at three weeks late to see green up this year. And when's that for you? Normally, I should be starting to see it about third week of April, second, about mid April, April mm -hmm. 15th, April 21st. And we were dang near May 7th. Holy cow. Yeah. Like, we're on. you know, tra traditional grass turnout in this part of the country is first of May. Mm -hmm. And we're on our second spring flush rotation by then, normally. And we were late this year on that. Yeah, it was cool dry winter and then it just turned out to be a hot dry summer like we didn't have that <laughs> yep. it would have been nice to have kind of a you know a transition period in there where it wasn't cold and it wasn't hot mm -hmm. but we didn't get that it just went from it just seemed like it went from pretty reasonable from hoodie weather to hundreds in two days i think that was a lot of spots believe it was almost hoodie weather this morning that was kind of nice yeah it has been pretty nice today yeah how are we doing on your list? We got about everything oh, covered. Oh man, I mean, mine. I mean, my sheet's almost full. Have we got almost got yours almost empty? Yeah, I mean, I guess I was supposed to ask you about some of the wrecks you've seen. Um, if you've got any, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, now I know how people, how much people hate me when I ask that question. Um, gosh, I don't really think I've had any any large spectacular wrecks lately mm -hmm. i've had maybe a couple minor fender benders that haven't been that dramatic yeah um you know i'm not gonna say breed up was a wreck i'm not gonna say fall breeding last year was a wreck because i'm happy with what i got i'm happy with with who got bred mm -hmm. i'm not upset with who's over in the cold kill pen yep um Rex, you know what? By the time this comes out, I'll bet I'll have a bunch more because I'll be trying to sell my first couple halves, first first cows that are coming out of processing plant. Mm -hmm. So if you're just li if you're listening to this, um, I forget what day I promised it'd come out. This should be episode eighty one, and um, yeah, I have cows going to the processor. So, and I have no idea what I'm going to do with them. I don't even have freezer space for all of them right now. Like I can't go pick all of them up from the free from the plant because I don't have enough freezer space for them to go right now. But from recording time, I have seven weeks to figure that out. Yep. So you better start because uh, getting the call with you got three beeves that need to go go into the freezer. Yeah, it's faster than you think. Yeah, yeah. I know that day will be faster. I know that day will come faster than I than I want it to. But, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that, looking forward to, um, you know, some of the animals. Like we were talking earlier, you know, if you don't know where it came from, you you don't want to market that as as antibiotic-free. Yep. And trust me, brother, I feel that. Like, I really feel that. And I feel that to the point that even though I've got some animals heading to the processor that have been standing on my ranch for a minimum of two years. Mm-hmm. I don't know what happened to him before that. Yep. And I, I just want to say that, like, you know, my integrity means a lot to me. Yeah. And it's not going to be this year. It'll be next year when, I'm, when I can sell a piece of meat from something that I know how it was cared for for every day of its life. Yep. 
And that's going to be the first calf that was born on the ranch. We saw him today. His name's Basil. He was born April 1st, 2020. Or, yeah, 2020. April 1st. Mm-hmm. And um, he could have gone to the, he could go to freezer camp this year, but I think I want to see what he looks like next year. Yeah. I think he'll be another two, he'll be at least another 200 pounds, if not three or 400 pounds next year. Yeah. And I think he'll be even more delicious next year. Yep. And that's going to be the first animal in 2023 to come off this ranch that's 100% ranch raised. That's awesome. And the hell of the deal is, I didn't breed that one. It's going to be 2024 before I can sell anybody a 100% Alexander Ranch raised, bread, bred, raised. born, grown, and harvested animal. It'll be 2023 before I can do that. Yeah. And you know what? I'm okay with that because that's 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 the product that I want to that's that's what I want to provide. That's what I want to feed my family. Yep. You know, I'm growing what I want to feed my family. I'm growing clean meat on salt and scenery with no antibiotics. 100%. Because that's what I want to eat and that's what I want my family to eat and that's what I want to be able to give to my friends. Yep. Perfect. Um one thing that was brought up that at, uh, I did a sheep school with uh, Jeremiah Markway and Ray Archuleta. They're having another one at Ray's place this uh, fall. And But uh, Jeremiah said something that really stuck out in my mind. And it's everybody, you know, you see a lot of these regenerative type people and they have this purist mindset, you know, and that if you use a tool, you know, you may not be considered a regenerative rancher. Like if you got that cow that she needs some warmer, you know, that you're going to warm that cow, you're going to, it's going to be bad. Or, you know, you, you have to warm a sheep, you know, that that's, you know, bad or, or something gets pink eye, you know, there's this, um, there's all these tools out there you know, you don't want to build a, a cow based around inputs, but there are tools to use, you know, like a like a one-time worming, you know. Um, you know, you might have to brush hog uh, pasture here and there every couple of years. I think there's a lot of cattle in this country that get wormed. Quote, wormed for worms that don't have worms. Yeah, yeah. and Like, how do you know? It, that's true. That is 100% true. Um, but, I mean, for the most part, like a wormy cow, I mean, you can tell, especially if you've been wormer-free. You can, Some of them you can tell. And a little shot of wormer and just color. I mean, you can clean her up with a little bit of wormer and and just color, and you don't have to market her as, uh, as regenerative stock. We don't. We we If we're going to worm something like that it's been on our place for a while and has worms or and she gets better we'll sell her through the barn because we don't want to pass that on to our to our customers right um but you know also you know people talk about pulling vaccines and and respiratory and black leg and we do respiratory and black leg our calves but we got into a predicament where we didn't and we lost 25% of our calf crop a few years ago. I think no matter how low I want to go on inputs, mm-hmm. there's still going to be vaccine involved. 
Yeah. You know, the BRD, Pasturel, Blackleg, Mm-hmm. Those are those are problems out here for cows. Yeah, and those aren't things that we can. That that's not genetic resistance we can breed in. Yeah, that's just something we're not going to get around. So yeah, we got to. I, I think for the time being, we got to solve those problems with needles. Yeah, and I'm okay with that. Yeah, and I got you know this. I had this purest mindset that you know I'm not. We're just going to pull it. We're not. You know we're not going to do this. And you know, but I mean it. It bit me in the ass. I, I mean, taking twenty five percent of your calf crop, and and it was our first year using South Pole bulls, or first year AIing the South Pole, and we lost majority of our AI'd calves. Wow, that hurt. That put us back a while. So, I'm thinking of something that uh, that I saw on Facebook. The guy from Sylvan Aqua Farms, Chris. Newman, I think, is his name. If I screwed that up, please send me some hate mail so I can schedule you for a podcast. Anyway, he's he's getting pretty outspoken on Facebook. Mm-hmm. If I'd, I'd encourage you to go check out Sylvan Aqua Farms on Facebook, there he's he's wild. But one of the things he says is he he describes growing food, and he use like he has a specific chicken example. He describes growing food as complex multivariable calculus. Now, I'm not real good at math, but I know that when I start running this complex multivariable calculus that's called ranching, mm-hmm. that I can start and I can put all my X, Y, and Z values into this calculation, and I get to start running this calculation. And while I'm running it for 180 or 210 or 270 days somebody else can come by and change one of the input numbers that I can't do anything about. Yeah. That's somebody being Mother Nature. Mm-hmm. She can change her inputs all the time on this complex input multivariable calculus. And her one little change can screw up all your numbers. Yeah, destroy them. And then you go back to the beginning as as practitioners of holistic adaptive plan grazing should, and you start again. Yep. With a different set of input variables. And then she changes another variable midstream. Then you're back to one. Mm-hmm. And the cost of getting it wrong too many times in a row is failure. Yep. And there's nobody to teach you how to do this math. <laughs> no. <laughs> there's not there's there's not a math course that we could take in college. Like there's there's not one on brilliant.org to that understands this. Yeah. That understands how infinitely variable you know production of food and production of livestock can be. Mm-hmm. And I feel like for the last 60, 70 years, it's all been fake. It's all just been fake and held up to too high of a production number held up with too many inputs and fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. And I kind of get a little concerned about what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, I don't know what's going to happen. Just trying to keep net profit, you know, number one priority, keep inputs low. Yeah. So how are you, what's your strategy for navigating the next few years? 
well, we're going to focus on education and focus on marketing. Um, and as, as long as we can keep, you know, educating our consumer, getting our name out there and providing a, a product that the consumers like to eat, then find, uh, find, I guess, good. Uh, we're going to tr- continue to grow our, our direct-to-consumer business, and I think that will help with uh, a lot of the uncertainties of going forward. Um, a lot of that, I mean, and if we keep our input costs down, I mean, one bale of hay, you know, we got one tractor. We do most of our work on a four-wheeler. Um, and just just really being intentional about what we do with our money, I think, is how we'll uh, navigate. There's something my friend Macaulay said, not last episode, but the one we did, like episode three. He, he said, I can't control how much money I make. I can only control how much money I spend. Yep. There's a lot of truth. Yeah. He's a smart kid, man. That guy, that kid is just... Yeah, yeah. I met him at the Soil Health Academy. I first attended at Ray's, Ray's place, and super sharp. And uh, yeah, he's got a lot going on. And he know, wears me out. He's got too much energy for me. Yeah, he, <laughs> you know, I saw Ray again, like I said, at the sheep school, and talked about all the things he was doing, and got a cover crop seed uh, business now. And actually, after Ray said that, I was in our uh, local farm store and there was a couple of his cover crop seed bags uh, in there which was really cool to see well i hope he listens to this and hears that yeah big shout out yeah yeah right so So where can we find you how can uh, how can our listeners get a hold of you how could people get in touch with you if they want to buy your meat um right now we're missouri inspected beef products so it's when we deliver to the st louis area um our website's uh, horsemancattleco.com uh you can find us on uh, instagram and facebook at horseman cattle co um you can find me august horseman on facebook and i believe that's my instagram name and then another thing we're doing is we've got a grazed in america livestock page so on facebook and it's a group for uh the transfer of ownership of uh of regeneratively raised uh livestock so kind of your one-stop uh shop for um all things grass-fed so where's pasture pigs on there there's guard dogs sheep goats occasional chickens and and cattle um just trying to get a spot because it is a small market you know and it's a niche and a niche and a niche yeah so as people try to grow their meat business i mean that's the one thing people uh we're running into or seeing i mean a lot of the people we sell steers to i mean they're just small farms you know it doesn't make sense for them to own a cow calf operation or to produce that so we try to produce steers for them, but I mean, we can't produce, we can't produce them all. Right. And right. we can't background them all for them. And there's people out there that need steers all over the place to finish or need some pigs for their pasture pork or some guard dogs for their sheep. And, uh, it's actually growing. And I think people move quite a few, 
quite a few critters through that site. But it just probably needs to be said that if you're joining that group, I'll get a, I'll make sure we, I'll get links to everything in the show notes, like all the books we talked about, groups, things. Um, I'll I'll try to do a good job on the show notes. Um, might even throw some affiliate links on some of those books. So if you guys want to buy some of those books, it might throw a few bucks back my way, which would be pretty cool. Um, I'll make sure we have links for those. Yeah. Yep. It's just uh, it's a rehoming page or a looking for no for sale. So I'll put that out there. Yeah. 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 Just read the fine print and make sure you don't use the wrong words on Facebook to keep the group alive. Yep. Yep. I had to go. I have to review every ad now because. Because people can't read instructions. Yeah. Yeah. But it's all right. Uh, I guess I just get first crack at it. Each each animal that comes through. Right. That's another way to look at it. Another way to look at it. <laughs> So, no, but, yeah, just trying to grow this community. I mean, it's uh, we all have the same goal, and that's to be land stewards and try to produce a great product for uh, for our customers to feed the world, right? Or feed our, <laughs> to feed our communities, I guess we should say. Yeah. So um, I just thought of something we'll take. We'll, we'll go out on this one. So there is a... Another friend visited me recently, and he listens to this podcast, and he knows who he is. And he brought a friend with him. And after they left, I got the following comment back. They said that, you know, they'd they'd visited another ranch on their way home. They said that those guys are ranchers. Brian's a land manager. Mm -hmm. I'll take it. Yeah, I want to be that one. I'll take it. Yep. All right, Perfect. you ready to go? Yeah, I gotta gotta get on the road. All right, well, I'll take you back to your hotel and your car, and you can get on the road. And um, appreciate you doing this. Been been nice hanging out with you today. Yeah, yeah, you got quite the place. If you get a chance, I'd get down here to the Red Hills and see it for yourself. There's there's a lot of lot of knowledge here. If you do, if you do come visit me in the Red Hills, there's always a danger you'll get drugged into the studio and I'll throw you in a chair for a couple hours and strap a microphone to your face and make you talk. Yep. And it hasn't been that terrible, has it? No, I thoroughly enjoyed it. All right. All right, well, let's go. All right, thank you. Have a good week. This episode has been sponsored by C90 Ocean Minerals. Visit C90.com to find a distributor near you or call to request a quote today. That's S E a-90.com. And don't forget to mention that Ranching Reboot sent you. Have a great week, y'all.